0: Chapter 10, Part 3 of History of the Christian Church during the First Six Centuries. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Christian Church during the First Six Centuries by S. Cheatham. Chapter 10, Theology and Theologians, Part 3. The churches of the West were much less disturbed by speculative questions than those of the East. The Latin theologians were for the most part rather deeply interested spectators of the contest which in the fourth and fifth centuries shook the oriental churches to their foundations than active combatants, though they were greatly influenced by the works of their Greek contemporaries. On the other hand, in practical questions, such as the nature and powers of the church, the relation of the grace of god to the soul of man and the like they took a much keener interest than their eastern brethren the romans when they accepted the yoke of christ retained the old governing spirit of the empire and the latin theology generally was more of the practical than of the speculative spirit when greek philosophy came to an end and no longer supplied a training for theologians the romans still found in the study of law an intellectual exercise which preserved their minds from torpidity. Latin theology is in fact the work of men who regarded the problems submitted to them with the eyes of lawyers rather than of philosophers. The greatest names among the Latins are those of St. Ambrose, St. Augustine, and Leo I, who, while retaining their own distinctive traits, were in harmony with the Alexandrian school of Athanasius and his followers. Hilary of Poitiers, Jerome in his earlier days, and Rufinius, were more directly influenced by the theology to which Origen had given its character. In the south of Gaul was found a group of theologians who had drawn their original inspiration from the school of Antioch. Hilary, Hilarius, the Athanasius of the West, was born at Poitiers about the year 320 of heathen parents, but after trying in vain to satisfy the hunger of his soul with philosophy, was admitted by baptism into the Church of Christ. Chosen about the year 350 to be bishop of his native city, he contended so earnestly for the faith which was then persecuted, that in the year 356 the Arian emperor Constantius banished him to Phrygia. When in the year 360 he was permitted to return to his see, he used his utmost efforts for the restoration of orthodoxy, both in his own country and in Italy, where at a council in Milan he entered the lists against the Arian bishop of that city, Oxentius. He died in the year 366. Hilary was one of the few Latins who understood the theology of the East, which he no doubt learned more thoroughly during his banishment. Hence he was a most valuable link between the Greek and the Latin church. He wrote commentaries on scripture which show the influence of Origen but he is best known by his great treatise on the trinity in which he defends the faith of nicaea he also wrote hymns but it is by no means certain that any of these have come down to our time hillary recognized much more than most of his contemporaries the importance of a good literary style as a vehicle of truth when he invokes god's help for his work on the holy trinity he prays not only for enlightenment but also for the power of correct expression He who conveys the message of a king should do it in words not unworthy. If, in spite of his pains, his does not rival the style of the classical or even the silver age of Latinity, we must remember that he had to find or fashion equivalents for Greek theological terms in Latin a much less copious and flexible language. Under the circumstances, he could scarcely avoid occasional obscurity and inelegance. Yet he is always terse and forcible, and his manifest earnestness and unaffectedness keep the reader's attention better than the more rhetorical displays of some other writers. One of the noblest and most impressive figures in the great company of the saints is St. Ambrose. Ambrosius, the son of a Roman of high military rank, became an advocate in Rome, where he practiced until he was appointed consular governor of North Italy, and came to reside at Milan. In the year 374, the See of Milan became vacant by the death of the Arian bishop Auxentius, and the people clamorously demanding Ambrose, who showed Christian virtues, though he was not yet baptized, for their bishop, he found himself unable to resist a call which he recognized as the voice of God. He sold his property, distributed the proceeds among the poor, and at once devoted himself to the study of theology and the duties of his office. He died on April 4, 397. His literary works are not of the first importance and do not show much originality. He drew largely from Greek sources and was influenced in his interpretation of scripture by the Alexandrian school, sometimes perhaps directly by Philo. His work on the duties of the clergy is a treatise on morality, founded on Cicero's well-known discourse on duties but penetrated throughout by the spirit of Christianity. While the earlier writer has in his mind the typical Roman statesman, the Christian contemplates one who serves God here and is to serve him better hereafter. He is also believed to have written hymns which have maintained their vogue even to this day, and if his writings do not show much creative power, we at least see in them not the facile declamation of a rhetorician, but the sober style of one to whom the old classics were familiar, and who had been trained in great affairs." But the bent of his mind was practical. His personal influence was extraordinary, in his own city almost irresistible. He could defy so powerful a person as Theodosius, while over the young emperor Gratian he seems to have had complete ascendancy. The very soldiers could not be induced to act against the great prelate. Saint Augustine gives an interesting account of his manner of life at Milan where his door was open to all, and whosoever would might enter unannounced, though no one ventured to disturb him if he was found with his eyes bent on a book. He received his clients as an old Roman patrician might have done. For many years he was the most powerful man in the western church, in which no important matter was transacted without him, but perhaps the greatest and most fruitful of his works was the conversion of St. Augustine. St. Jerome, one of the great of the Latin fathers, was born rather more than three hundred years after the Lord's death in a little town called Striden, on the frontier between Dalmatia and Pannonia, on the border of the modern Herzegovina, being thus one of that race of hardy mountaineers which in the declining days of the Roman Empire supplied so many able men to her service. His name, Eusebius Hieronymus, is Greek, but he always wrote in Latin, though he had, as we shall see, a far more intimate connection with the East than any other Latin father. His parents, who were Christian, were rich enough to give him an excellent education. Still young, he went to Rome, where he not only received a literary training, but also cultivated that dialectic skill, which in later days served him well in his numerous controversies. Here he began to acquire a library and to study Greek philosophy. Here, too, he was baptized, no doubt after the usual careful preparation. From the great city he passed to Trevay and thence to Aquileia, still eagerly pursuing his studies. But a great change was soon to pass over the life of the young student. It was probably in Aquileia that he received the first impulse to asceticism, and it is perhaps this which drove him to the east, then the land of monks and hermits. In Syria a dear friend who was with him died, and he himself lay long on a sickbed. While his fevered mind was distracted between love for the old classic writers and the feeling that he ought to live more completely to Christ, he was deeply impressed by a vivid dream. He abandoned, for the time at least, his classics and his philosophy, and rushed into the Syrian desert. There he occupied himself at first with the hand labor, which has often soothed burning brains, and afterwards with the transcription of books. But he found no peace. His desert solitude was filled with voluptuous visions of the world which he wished to leave. Prayer and meditation were often impossible. But one thing happened in Jerome's retirement which makes an epoch in the history of the Christian Church. He learned Hebrew from a converted Jew. He was probably the first member of the Latin Church who was able to read the scriptures of the Old Testament in the original tongue, and this learning was to bear much fruit. When Jerome left the desert, he betook himself to Antioch, where he was ordained priest with the understanding that he was not to be required to undertake a pastoral charge. Thence he passed to Constantinople, where he read the scriptures with Gregory of Nazianzus, and improved his knowledge of Greek. About two years after his arrival in Constantinople, we find him again in Rome, where he acted as secretary to Pope Damasus, and was for a time, though still only a presbyter, one of the greatest powers in Christendom. It was at the bidding of Damasus that he undertook a revision of the Old Latin translation of the New Testament, the copies of which varied in an extraordinary degree. He also revised the Latin version of the Old Testament with the help of the Septuagint, and somewhat later translated it afresh from the Hebrew. His labors were received with no favor by the multitude. The Old Latin was the only Bible they knew, In the instruction of the young in sermons and devotional writings it had grown familiar its quaintness its very faults were dear but in the end jerome's revised version became what is to this day the bible in common use the versio vulgata in every part of the latin church its influence on latin theology has been enormous since for a thousand years latin writers with the rarest possible exceptions KNEW THE SCRIPTURES IN NO OTHER FORM THAN THAT WHICH JEROME HAD GIVEN THEM. BUT JEROME'S LIFE IN ROME WAS BY NO MEANS wholly LITERARY. HE GAINED THERE A VERY REMARKABLE INFLUENCE IN THE HIGHEST RANKS. HE WAS NOT A MAN TO COMPROMISE WITH THE PAGANISM WHICH STILL PERVADED ROMAN SOCIETY. IN THE MIDST OF LUXURY HE PRACTICED AND ADVOCATED SIMPLICITY AND EVEN RIGOR OF LIFE. OVER CERTAIN NOBLE LADIES, IN PARTICULAR, HIS INFLUENCE WAS GREAT AND LASTING fashionable society lampooned him, and in the year 385 he left the half-pagan city for the Holy Land, and in the following year, when he was about forty years old, settled at Bethlehem. His devoted friend Paula, a Roman lady of rank and wealth, soon followed him, and by her means a monastery was built over which Jerome presided, and a convent for women of which she herself was the head. There was also a hospice for the pilgrims who now began to pour into Palestine to visit the place made sacred by the Lord's footsteps. There he passed the last thirty-four years of his life, and there he died, worn out with constant toil and in poverty, which he sometimes mentions in his letters, but of which he never complains. He and Paula had spent their means on the establishments at Bethlehem the day of his death is generally believed to have been september thirty a d four twenty when he must have been between seventy and eighty years of age but as to this there is much uncertainty though the last years of jerome's life were spent in one spot they are full of mental activity it was at bethlehem that he finished his translation of the bible but beside this great work there was hardly a controversy of his time in which he did not eagerly engage so that he left behind a large collection of letters and other writings. St. Jerome is generally painted as an emaciated man in a cave or cell with a book, and this representation indicates the two things for which he is chiefly remarkable, his devotion to the ascetic life and his learning. Until the time of Erasmus, he remained the first scholar of the Western Church, a scholar not only in his love for the old classic writers and in his vigorous and expressive style, but in bringing a scholarly spirit to the interpretation of the Bible. He was not content, like his predecessors, in the West, to know the scriptures only at second hand. He would know the original text and illustrate it by all the grammatical and historical knowledge which was within his reach. His great snare was his vehemence of temperament. With his incisive satirical bitterness and contempt for his opponents, he scarcely ever put pen to paper without making a lifelong enemy. Still, with all his faults, Jerome had immense influence on his own age, and remains one of the most striking figures in Christian antiquity. One whose name is always connected with that of Jerome, his friend in youth, his foe in old age, was Tyrannius Rufinus. Born near Aquileia, he early entered a monastery in that city. His passion for the ascetic life drew him, like Jerome, to the old home of asceticism, Egypt where he saw the great Athanasius, and visited many of the monks and hermits who peopled the Thebaid. But he also made the acquaintance of the learned Didymus in Alexandria, where he stayed several years and acquired that love for the Greek theology, and most of all for Origen, which bore fruit in after years. In the year 377 he passed on to Jerusalem, where for twenty years he lived as a monk on the Mount of Olives during which period he was embroiled with Jerome on the questions which arose about Origin. In the year 397 he returned to Italy, having been for the time reconciled to Jerome. The strife, however, broke out anew, and was carried on by both the parties with the most ruthless animosity. From the time of his return to Italy, Rufinius lived mostly at Aquileia, engaged in literary work, until the invasion of the West Goths drove him to seek refuge in the South. He died in Messina in the year 410. The fame of Rufinius rests principally on his translations. He published a free translation or adaptation of Eusebius's church history, which he continued to the death of Theodosius I. He collected and translated lives of the Egyptian ascetics. He made origin known in the West by translating a portion of his works and it is to him that we owe our knowledge of the Clementine recognitions, the original of which is lost. Without being a man of original power, he rendered great service to the Western Church. His lives of the saints have retained considerable influence even to our own time. The greatest of the Latin fathers, the source and fountain indeed, of most of the Latin theology, was, it is generally agreed, Aurelius Augustinius, whom we commonly know as St. Augustine. And of all the fathers he is best known to us, for in his confessions he gives us a history of his religious opinions such as few men have left behind. He was born on the 13th November, 354, at Tagaste in Numidia, and received his first religious impressions from his good Christian mother, Monica. Endowed with the highest mental gifts, and a temperament burning with southern passion, He was in early days equally eager in the study of letters and in the pursuit of sensuous enjoyment. In this life of excitement, the religious impressions of his childhood were for a time obliterated. It was the reading of Cicero's Hortensius which roused again in him the longing for the attainment of truth and for a higher and nobler life. He read scripture, but found its simplicity bald and unsatisfying. He turned in his restlessness to the pretentious sect of the Machinaeans, then widely spread in South Africa, attracted by their rigorous life and their claim to possess a hidden wisdom. From his nineteenth to his twenty-eighth year he remained in the outer circle of the sect, hoping at last by initiation to attain the knowledge of their mysteries. Undeceived at last, he fell into despair of all truth from this painful state he was to some extent relieved by the works of the neoplatonists which led him into a new world of thought while the Manichaeans had represented the world as agitated by a ceaseless contest of good and bad of which man was the almost helpless sport neoplatonism taught him that the good was the only real existence that the bad was but the absence of good it was in this state of mind that augustine who had already taught rhetoric with success at Tagaste and in Carthage, passed over to Rome and thence to Milan. He was then religious after a fashion, but regarded Christianity as only for such as could not rise to the heights of philosophy. It was at this time that he became conscious of the divine force of St. Paul's epistles, and that he fell under the influence of St. Ambrose. He attended his preaching from admiration of his oratory, and found himself pricked to the heart by the truths which he delivered. After a painful inward struggle, he acknowledged the truth as it is in Christ Jesus, and was baptized by Ambrose in the year 387, together with his natural son, Adiodotus. From this time began the controversy, which only ended with his life, against his old allies, the Manichaeans. In the year after his baptism, he returned to Africa, where he lived in the country in a kind of monastic solitude, until in three ninety two he was ordained presbyter, much against his will, in Hippo Regius, three years later, he became its bishop. henceforward, though bishop of a small town of no fame or importance, he belonged to the church at large. He was in constant communication with all parts of the Latin church, urging, advising controverting. He died on the twenty eighth of August, four thirty while Hippo was besieged by the invading army of the Vandals. He had unceasingly employed both tongue and pen in the service of the Church. He vindicated the ways of God to man against those who distrusted divine providence. He asserted the true idea of the Church against those who resisted its authority. In a society still hot with the embers of the Arian controversy, he expounded the mystery of the Holy Trinity. He maintained man's need of the grace of God against those who contended that his natural powers were sufficient for him. In a word, there was no prominent question of his time which he did not discuss and illustrate, and his influence generally settled the disputed points in the form which he preferred. He had a quick and lively fancy and a mind of almost unequaled ingenuity and readiness. Arguments and analogies never fail him. Probably no writer has produced so many striking maxims, but it is not his imagination or his dialectic skill which has given him the immense and abiding influence which he has in fact exercised in Latin Christianity. This he owes to a combination of dialectic power with an earnestness in believing, a conviction of the lost condition of those who deliberately reject the gifts which Christ has left in his church, a knowledge of the human heart, a devoutness, tenderness and sympathy such as has fallen to the lot of few. It would be too much to say that his treatment of great questions is always adequate and satisfactory. His extraordinary skill in reply seems sometimes to have hidden even from himself the real force of the statement which he answers. And, writing as he did in haste and with warmth, he found in cooler moments many things in his own works which he wished to withdraw or modify. But, take him for all in all, no writer in the Latin Church was ever endowed with more brilliant gifts or used them with greater zeal for the glory of God than St. Augustine. An excellent instance of a man of wealth and culture brought to forsake the world is Paulinus of Nola, who was born at Bordeaux of a wealthy and distinguished Roman family. While still in Bordeaux he was a pupil of the poet Asonius, a friend of his father's. In 379 he was counsel, and everything seemed to promise him a brilliant secular career when a new influence turned him aside. He was greatly struck by the veneration paid to Christian martyrs. Martin of Tours and Ambrose gained great influence on his mind, and he was seized with a great anxiety, lest the last day should overtake him while engaged in things that profit not. When a much-longed-for child was taken away after a few days' life, he and his wife, who was also rich, agreed to sell what they had and give to the poor, and so to withdraw from the peril of riches and from the deceitful world. His family were greatly troubled, but Martin was delighted with the man who had supplied an almost unique example of obedience to a hard precept of the gospel. In a hospice which they had built in Nola, he and his wife spent their days in the most rigorous self-mortification. But in all his austerity, Paulinus retained his naturally kindly and genial character. Friend as he was of Jerome and Augustine, he did not break with Rufinus and Pelagius. His writings consist of letters and poems, often of great interest for the history of the time, as well as for the life of the poet himself. It is curious to see the utmost rudeness of life recommended in the language of courtly and artificial poetry almost as if Quakerism had been preached in the style of Pope. He was chosen Bishop of Nola in the year 409, and died there in 431. Another Latin poet, like Paulinus of distinguished family, and engaged in early years in affairs of state, was the Spaniard Prudentius. He, feeling as he grew old, that the pursuits of which he had been engaged were such as profit not in the day of judgment, set himself to him, in a style imitative of the old Roman poets, the heroes of the noble family of martyrs, and even to inveigh in verse against the enemies of Christian truth. Leo, the first pope of that name, was also the first pope of whom we know any literary productions. It was during his tenure of the papacy that he delivered the sermons which have come down to us. If they have not Augustine's wealth of thought, nor Ambrose's eloquence, They are written in a style which is good for its time, clear, vigorous, and by no means commonplace. He attains perhaps his highest eloquence when he speaks of that see of Rome which he had himself done so much to raise to power over the Church. Leo's letters are also of the highest interest as documents of Church history, but these should perhaps be regarded rather as dispatches from the papal chancery than as the work of the Pope himself. In any case, they are well written. Severinus Bothius, a Roman philosopher and statesman, holds a place apart in the history of the Church. Born in Rome, he rose to high place and dignity under the great king of the East Goths, Theoderic. Falling, however, under suspicion of a treasonable correspondence with the court of Byzantium, he was cast into prison and in the year 525 was put to death. During his captivity, he wrote his treatise on the consolation of philosophy, which, though it rather breathes the spirit of the old Roman Stoicism than of Christianity, brought to its author the reputation of a great theologian, and was much studied in the Middle Ages, as the work of that holy soul who maketh manifest the cheating world to him who hears aright. Medieval readers probably found in him something which was wanting in the scholastic theology. In Pavia, where he was buried, he has even been venerated under the title of St. Severnius, and the papal Congregation de Riti, in 1884, expressly allowed this cultus. His translations and explanations of some of the treatises of Aristotle greatly influenced the philosophy of the schoolmen. It is doubtful whether he was really the author of the dogmatic treatises attributed to him. End of chapter 10, part 3